in my previous video concerning the tumbling T of TULIP. Now TULIP, remember, are the initials from the five primary doctrines of Calvinism. I covered the Calvinist doctrine of total human depravity, the T, and demonstrated that the key to understanding lay in understanding the biblical definition of death, both physical and spiritual. Once understood, it is clear that a person is not a stone, as Calvinism teach, a stone unable to hear the scripture and respond to the convicting power of the Holy Spirit. The true biblical definition of human depravity is the state of fallen man in a totally unrighteous condition with a fallen and corrupt nature and heart. In this blind state, he is totally unable to save himself apart from God's gracious gift of salvation through the Word of God and the confirmation of the truth by the Holy Spirit. This doctrine does not and should not define how God saves a person. The how God saves a person is the topic of this video, our second one in our series, Oops! I thought I was a four-point Calvinist. Once understood, the first domino of Calvinists tumbled over the tumbling tea. And as it falls, we'll continue to show that all the remaining four dominoes of Calvinism will fall to the truth of the scriptures. Now, when it came to the doctrine of unconditional election, the U of TULIP, I thought that I agreed with the Calvinistic view. For even a cursory search of the scripture reveals the terms elect, election, and chosen. Clearly, God used these terms. Therefore, we must accept them and not reject it as an exclusive Calvinistic idea. For many years, I accepted and even defended what appears to be a contradiction in Scripture. That contradiction is that man has the ability to accept or to reject God's offer of salvation because he has a free will. Now, that's an aspect of being made in the image of God. Uh, one verse that represents this is Revelation 22, verse 17, where it says, Whosoever will, let him take of the water of life, where the water of life is clearly salvation. And then we have the contradiction that God chose those individuals whom he desired to save before the world began. If we turn to Ephesians 1 verse 4, we read, He, that's God, hath chosen us in him before the foundation of the world. Hmm. I simply reasoned that this seeming contradiction between whosoever will and God hath chosen us stemmed from the fact that I'm finite and I have a limited capacity to fully comprehend the workings of our infinite God. I believe that someday in eternity, when my mind is better able to comprehend how these two opposing concepts can both be true, I'd understand them. This is how many people deal with this issue. Perhaps you do. However, I did notice a distinction between these two verses that's significant. The words, whosoever will, imply an individualistic choice, for the grammar supports the whosoever as singular, 
why the words hath chosen us, us is plural, suggesting more than one individual. I began to re-examine my understanding of election in light of this difference and soon observed a consistent pattern in scripture that led me to an alternative view of election that resolved the seeming contradiction. I then learned that there have been others before me in history who have come to the same conclusion as I have done, one that offers harmony between God's sovereign choosing of the elect and each individual's freedom to accept or reject his offer of salvation. My journey to this conclusion began with an inductive study of God's use of terms relating to elections in both the Old and New Testament. Although this view of election is discussed in greater detail in my book, The Alternative View of Election, I'm going to summarize in this video what I have observed and why it has tumbled the U of TULIP. In my study, I see that God has identified three unique groups in the scriptures as elect. In 1 Timothy 5.21, I see that the righteous angels are called elect. In Isaiah 45, verse 4, I see the nation of Israel is called elect. And then in Romans chapter 12, uh, verse 5, in 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 2, and Colossians 3.12, I find that the body of Christ, the church, is called elect. So let us consider how each elect group can be elect. We'll begin with the first elect group, the angels. In his first letter to Timothy, Paul wrote to the first group that God identified as being elect. He refers to the holy angels. If you'll turn to 1 Timothy chapter 5, we'll see this reference. 1 Timothy chapter 5. And we'll look at verse 21. I charge thee before God and the Lord Jesus Christ and the elect angels that thou observe these things without preferring one before another, doing nothing by partiality. Notice there the term, the elect angels. These are the angels that chose to continue in obedient service to God rather than rebel against him and follow Lucifer, who was then renamed Satan or adversary after his rebellion. You see, during the rebellion in heaven, the entire angelic host divided into two groups based upon each angel's decision. The holy angels chose to obey God and serve him and not sin. The fallen angels, now which we refer to them as demons, chose to disobey God, to rebel against God, and to follow Lucifer, who is now Satan. Now, while sin was certainly involved in the formation of these two groups, notice, salvation's not involved at all. 
the Bible indicates that the angel's spiritual state became fixed at that point in time, whether they were righteous or unrighteous. For God does not provide forgiveness or restoration for the angels that rebelled. Uh, you can see this in Matthew 25:41 and Revelation 20:10. This is confirmed now in Hebrews chapter 1 and verse 14. So please turn over to Hebrews chapter 1 and verse 14. And there in Hebrews 1, verse 14, we read, Are they not all ministering spirits, uh, you could say serving spirits, sent forth to minister for them who shall be heirs of salvation? It's obvious that the angels are not the beneficiaries of salvation since they are ministering to those who are the heirs of salvation. That's human beings. Furthermore, we're also told in 1 Peter 1.12 that angels cannot fully understand salvation and they're curious about it. For part of God's plan is to demonstrate his wisdom to principalities and powers. That's angels. Through his plan of history especially the redemption of humanity, Ephesians 3.10. Finally, the fact that Christ took on the likeness of men instead of angels clearly indicates that he came to redeem human beings of flesh and blood, not angelic beings. You can find this in Hebrews 2, verses 14 through 16, and Philippians 2, 6 through 8. Now, many passages in Scripture tell of the numerous ways elect angels serve God's purpose in the past, present, and in the future, besides ministering to believers here on earth. Some angels in heaven do God's bidding, while others surround the throne with joyous praise that will continue for eternity. I would urge you to view Pastor David Moss's series on angels, to better understand about angels and their unique role in God's plan. You may view it on our internet channel, CMI TV, available through our websites, www.congdenministries.org or through www.sundaystreams.com. For those of you with Roku or Apple, you can also view it on your Roku TV and Apple TV. Now, the audio of these programs on angels is also available through iTunes by searching Congdon Ministries. So, in summary, with respect to the elect angels, we conclude, number one, the angels are divided into two distinct and permanent groups, elect angels and fallen or demonic angels. Number two, the formation of these two groups is based on each angel's decision to obey and serve God or to disobey, rebel, and follow Lucifer. And three, very importantly, salvation was not involved in the formation of the elect group of angels. They could not be reconciled or restored to their righteous position for those who fell. God didn't provide that as something that could be done for them. Finally, number four, God's elect group of angels serve his plans and purposes in unique ways as ministering spirits. 
The second group God designated as being mine elect is the nation of Israel. For he said in Isaiah 45 and verse 4, For Jacob my servant's sake and Israel's mine elect, I have called thee by thy name. I have surnamed thee, though thou hast not known me. The nation of Israel, which is composed of all individuals who are descendants of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Through both Moses and Paul, God clearly indicated that Jacob was the representative head of this elect nation, for he fathered its twelve tribes. The entire nation of Israel was within, if you will, the loins of Jacob, so to speak, when God chose or elected him to be the nation's head, for the peoples of each tribe had not yet been born. Now over in Isaiah 41.8, turn there if you will, please. Isaiah 41, just back a few pages. And verse 8. But thou, Israel, art my servant Jacob, whom I have chosen, the seed of Abraham, my friend. I have chosen, or if you will, the word really is in the Hebrew, elected. Now, if you'll also turn to Genesis chapter 17, we're going to see important tie-in here between these two over in Genesis chapter 17. Genesis 17, Uh, let's look at verse 7. And I will establish my covenant between me and thee, he's speaking to Abraham now, and thy seed after thee in their generations for an everlasting covenant to be a God unto thee and to thy seed after thee. Notice here, clearly, God is speaking to Abram, verse 1. Verse 2, he says, I'll make my covenant between me and thee. I will multiply thee exceedingly. And then he goes on to explain that this will be an everlasting covenant. You see, this group of people became a nation after being thrust out of Egypt and into the wilderness, where they were separated at that point from other nations of the world. We read that in Exodus chapter 11 and verse 1. At Mount Sinai, God not only gave his nation the law to govern and guide it, but he also gave the children of Israel the opportunity as a nation to choose whether or not they would obey and serve him. In Exodus chapter 19, you see, they are a collective group. So turn, if you will, to Exodus chapter 19. Okay, Exodus chapter 19. Let's see this collective group. If we look at verse 8, for it tells us that the people as a whole answered with one voice and agreed to obey. Notice it says, And all the people answered what? Together. That's a group. And said, All that the Lord hath spoken we will do. And Moses returned the words of the people unto the Lord. They're going to do all that the Lord has spoken. At this point, Israel became God's special people and his holy nation. Look in verse 5, just above. Now therefore, 
if ye will obey my voice, indeed, and keep my covenant, then ye shall be a peculiar or a special or chosen treasure unto me above all people, for all the earth is mine. That's God speaking. And ye shall be unto me a kingdom of priests, and what? A holy nation. These are the words which thou shalt speak unto the children of Israel. However, it was not until 40 years later that God used Moses to declare Israel to be his chosen, his elect nation over in Deuteronomy chapter 7. So please turn to Deuteronomy chapter 7. Deuteronomy chapter 7 and verse 6. For thou art a holy people unto the Lord thy God. The Lord thy God hath chosen thee or elected thee to be a special people unto himself above all the people that are upon the face of the earth. Notice, God waited until they were ready to enter Canaan when they were would serve him before calling them his chosen or his elect nation. God's election of Israel is a collective selection for a nation that has been singled out to serve God's purposes in carrying out his plan of history. Notice, just as the righteous angels only were called elect when they chose to serve God, so too Israel is only called elect after God formed them as a national group of people. Israel has always served as a witness to the nations of the world of God's faithfulness in preserving her, even when they've been in exile. God's preserved them, and that's a testimony to God's promise and faithfulness. It was also through Israel that the scriptures were written and carefully kept and God's plan of salvation for mankind was accomplished through the Jewish Messiah, Jesus Christ. Israel also figures prominently in God's plan for the millennial kingdom and on then into eternity. So, as it relates to Israel then, the term elect is not associated in any way with salvation or redemption of individuals, for not all members of the nation of Israel were righteous or saved. As God's Bible clearly reveals, it's interesting to note that in individual foreigners, that's Gentiles, were permitted to become a part of this group or nation as proselytes if they chose to do so of their own free will. Before Christ came, Individual Jewish people were made righteous by faith in the promised Messiah, which was demonstrated through obedience to God's sacrificial system that pictured Christ, the Lamb. Today, individual Jewish people who turn to Jesus Christ as their Messiah for salvation become a part of the church, not Israel. During the tribulation, many Jewish people will recognize Jesus of Nazareth as Messiah and call out to him for salvation. Salvation is always an individual matter between a person and God. When we have a whole group, they're called elect.
these people that will call out to him at the end, in the tribulation will enter the millennium and what will they do? They will serve him in unique ways as a nation. You could look at Zechariah 12:10 and chapter 8 verse 23. So God chose or elected the nation of Israel to serve him in unique ways just as he chose or elected the obedient angels to serve him. Neither group's election had anything to do with individual salvation, but in both cases indicated that they each had been set apart to serve God's plan and purposes. So in summary, with respect to the elect nation of Israel, we conclude the entire nation was still in the loins of Jacob when God chose or elected him to be its head. Departure from Egypt, the giving of the law, and the wilderness experiences served to form God's elect nation of Israel from the descendants of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Now, the official formation of Israel was the result of the people's collective choice to obey the Lord and to serve him as his nation. However, God waited until they were ready to enter Canaan before calling Israel his chosen or his elect nation. The term elect is not associated in any way with salvation or redemption of Jewish individuals. God chose or elected the nation of Israel for the purpose to serve him in unique ways. We have seen how two of the three groups in the Bible called elect were elected. They chose to serve God. Their election was to serve him. So we saw elect angels, the righteous angels serving him, elect nation of Israel, the nation serving him. We're now ready to consider the third elect group, the body of Christ, the church. Let's consider how election now relates to those of the church age. During this age, God has divided humanity into three groups, Jewish, Gentile, and the Church of God, which includes all true believers of this age. You see, we read in 1 Corinthians 10, verse 32, Give none offense, neither to the Jews, nor to the Gentiles, nor to the Church of God. At Pentecost, a new elect group of people began to be formed, it's called the church. We read it, it's beginning in Acts chapter 2. We see that in Peter's first book, chapter 2 and verse 9, he again repeats this idea. So why don't you turn to 1 Peter chapter 2. Chapter 2 and verse 9. I, I'm sure you're familiar with this verse. But ye are a chosen generation, a royal priesthood, a, chosen, a holy nation, a peculiar or unique people, that you should show forth the praises of him who hath called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. A, a, a chosen people. God has called out of darkness into his light. The same biblical truth can be applied to the church as was applied to Israel 
when it was yet in the loins of Jacob. For the church was contained in Jesus Christ, whom God chose or elected as its representative head before the foundation of the world. Now please turn back and see what Paul says of this in Ephesians chapter 1. You'll recall from our previous video that we stressed how important Ephesians chapter 1 is and how it really defines the proper use of not only depravity, but of election. Ephesians chapter 1, beginning at verse 4. Well, let's go to 3. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us with all spiritual blessings in heavenly places. Now, key word there is in Christ. According as he has chosen us. That's the church. Again, key word, in him. Before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and without blame before him in love. Having predestinated us, there we get into some of the terms that people use in election. Having predestinated us unto the adoption of children by Jesus Christ to himself, according to the good pleasure of his will. To what? The praise of the glory of his grace, wherein he hath made us accepted in the beloved. Jesus Christ was chosen or elected by God to be the head of his people. You see, we're to be joint heirs of all his blessings. All individuals who have chosen or by their own will to be in Christ during the church age then necessarily come to share in his election, identity, and his inheritance. Christ, in turn, indwells believers and seals them with the Holy Spirit of promise. Several verses on that. Colossians 1.27, 1 John 4.13, and Ephesians 1.13. In whom ye also trusted, after that ye heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, in whom also... After that ye believed, ye were sealed with the Holy Spirit of promise. After ye believed, you're then sealed with the Holy Spirit and dwells you. No other group in the Bible are sealed or indwelled with the Holy Spirit. Now, in the Old Testament, yes, the Holy Spirit came upon people, enabled them to carry out tasks, but there was no permanent dwelling of the Holy Spirit in them. You see, for all who are in Christ, it is their identification with him that makes them part of the elect group. The only condition of membership is faith alone in Jesus Christ. The use of the term election does not indicate the selection of individuals for salvation. Hmm, I'll pick him. No, I don't want him. I'll pick him. No, no, no. The use of the term election does not indicate the selection of individuals for salvation, but is used with the purpose of identification with Christ as head of the church. It's very interesting to note that the term in Christ is used very frequently in the New Testament to refer to individual believers who have been joined together as a collective body or group. Romans 12.5 says, So we being many are one body in Christ and every one members one of another. You see, this is all a group that's come together in Christ. 
the church is distinctly separate from those who are without Christ. Ephesians 2.12 That at that time you were without Christ. Now you're in Christ, but you were without Christ, being aliens from the commonwealth of Israel and strangers from the covenant of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. You see, the church is distinctly separate from those who are without Christ. It is to serve God's plan and purposes in unique ways. The church is to make disciples by proclaiming the gospel to all men using the scriptures, Matthew 28, 19 through 20, and then teaching and equipping them to serve the Lord in the church age and in his coming kingdom. Since we're in Ephesians, look at Ephesians 4, verse 11. Ephesians 4, verse 11. And he gave some apostles, some prophets, some evangelists, some pastors, teachers, for the perfecting of the saints, for the work of the ministry. That's service. For the edifying of the body of Christ, when? Till we all come into the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God, unto a perfect or complete man, unto the measure of the statue of the fullness of Christ. The church also is to represent Christ in the world, Acts 2.8, while proclaiming his return and his coming kingdom of Revelation 22, verses 16 and 17. And ultimately, the church will co-reign with Christ as his bride. Revelation 19, 7-9 speaks of the bride, and Ephesians 5.23 and 32. In summary then, number one, Christ with his bride, the church, is God's elect. The church is composed of individuals who are in Christ. Once you are in him, you're part of his election. And in whom Christ dwells and is distinctly separate from those individuals who are without Christ. Number two, when individuals freely choose to believe in Christ by faith, they become part of the elect body or group of those in Christ. Number three, although individuals freely choose to enter the group through saving faith, their decision is not influenced by God's choosing or electing to form a church with Christ as its head. It, it, you see, they choose to be in it. God elected the church as a whole and Christ for eternity. For God chose or elected the church to serve his plan and purposes in unique ways. The words in Ephesians 1, he hath chosen us, indicates God's decision to use the group, the us, for his service. He's elected us to serve us. It's the service that has been elected. As we have already observed with angels and the nation of Israel, God established a clear pattern for election. He employs the term elect when singling out a group to serve his specific purposes in a unique way as a corporate or united entity. Therefore, group, or as it's sometimes called, corporate election, refers to the choosing of a group which by its very definition indicates that it's a collection of individuals or make up the membership, if you will, of the group. God chose or elected to form the church with Christ as its head. 
It is composed of individual members who freely have chosen to identify with him and to be in him. In the case of the elect church, this identification involves faith as the means of entry into the collective body, causing each member to be redeemed and eternally secure in his or her salvation. Salvation is always individual choice. Election is what the group is planned by God to carry out as it serves him. Once part of the group, they are to work together. This is in Ephesians chapter 2. Let's turn over to Ephesians chapter 2. I'm going to read two familiar verses and then a third verse that should always be pulled with it. Verse 8, For by grace are you saved through faith, that not of yourselves, it, that salvation, is the gift of God. Not of works, lest any man should boast. Now, once you have received salvation by accepting Christ through faith, for we, verse 10, are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus, what to? Unto good works, which God hath before ordained that we should walk in them. God has planned before the world began what the church is to accomplish. When we freely choose to enter into it, we then walk with Jesus Christ in Christ and carry out that plan that he has ordained for us to walk in. You could say that God elected the church to walk in them. The use of the term election does not indicate the selection of individuals for salvation, but is used with the purpose of identification with Christ as head of the church. God elected to form the church with Christ as its head. He did not choose those who would be part of it. But through the church, God will manifest more of his specific attributes to his glory. Look at verse 21 of chapter 3. Well, let's go back to 20. Now unto him that is able to do exceedingly abundantly above all that we ask or think, according to the power that worketh in us, unto him be glory where? In the church, by Christ Jesus, throughout all ages, world without end. God has used election in both the Old and New Testament to bring about the fulfillment of his plan and purposes that he foreordained in eternity past. As part of the means of accomplishing his plan, he chose or elected to create three groups to serve him, the elect nation of Israel, the elect angels, and Christ and his body, the elect church. Based upon my inductive study, I have concluded that election is a term used of specific groups without respect to salvation. Calvinists teach that election indicates God's predetermined will regarding the eternal destiny of individual peoples, those who will inherit everlasting life with him, and those who will be condemned to eternal death in the lake of fire. For Calvinists believe that human beings do not have a free will. According to the Westminster Confession, the U of unconditional election originates and I'm quoting, by the decree of God for the manifestation of his glory, 
Some men and angels are predestined unto everlasting life, others foreordained to everlasting death. These angels and men, thus predestinated and foreordained, are particularly and unchangeably designed and their number so certain and definite that it cannot be either increased or diminished. Notice that. The confession clearly states that some individuals, angels and men, are elected to damnation, just as Calvin himself said. For he said, and I quote, By predestination, we mean the eternal decree of God, by which he determined with himself whatever he wished to happen with regard to every man. All are not created on equal terms, but some are preordained to eternal life, others to eternal damnation. And accordingly, as each has been created for one or the other of those ends, we say that he has been predestination, predestined to life or death. End quote. Now, if Calvinism is correct, then of the three applications of the term elect in the Bible, the two relating to angels and human individuals indicate that God chose some angels and humans for eternal life and others for eternal death and damnation. Furthermore, one must conclude that those who are not elect are simply consigned to an existence of eternal punishment with no real purpose, no service, or goal, apart from merely being props, if you will, on the stage of redemptive history. In an upcoming special, I will explain the concept of redemptive history as taught by many Calvinists. Now, unconditional election is derived from the Reformed Calvinist theology's teachings on total human depravity that we taught in the previous video. Total human depravity defines man's spiritual deadness as an inanimate, stone-like condition that cannot be responded to God in any way until he is regenerated. Uh, God gives life to that individual, thereby making him capable of exercising believing faith. This presupposition is like a uh, filter through which Calvinists view and interpret verses on elections, such as Ephesians 1, 4 through 6 that we've just read a while ago. They believe these verses teach that God, as a sovereign ruler over all things, chose those individuals whom he does desired to be in him before the foundation of the world, and conversely, those who would not be in him. While all Christians would agree, certainly agree, that God is sovereign over his entire universe, his entire creation, he rules all things, I would suggest that his sovereignty allows him to permit degrees of freedom within his creation. If this weren't so, then God is the author of evil, the one who foreordained and instigated Satan's rebellion and Adam's decision to sin. See, if he controlled everything, then he would have necessarily had to create evil. But this is totally inconsistent with God's holy nature. For he cannot be tempted with evil, nor does he tempt any man James 1.13 Reformed Calvinists make no allowance for God to grant any degrees of freedom. For according to their uh, writer, Louis Burkhoff, a well-known Calvinist, 
in his systematic theology, he's a key writer, let me note that, on Reformed teaching. He states, and I'm going to quote him, and I quote, God has sovereignly determined from all eternity whatsoever will come to pass and works his sovereign will in his entire creation, both natural and spiritual, according to his predetermined plan, end quote. Calvinists use Ephesians 1.11 to support their view, where it says, being predestined according to the purpose of him who worketh all things after the counsel of his own will. Now, it should be observed, however, that applying this verse to election ignores the obvious subject of the section of Paul's epistles, to the praise of God's glory, verses 7 through 12. You see, after introducing the blessings of salvation, in verse 7, let's, let's turn to Ephesians chapter 1 again. Ephesians chapter 1. I think it's important that we actually see God's words. And so we read here, uh, Paul has introduced salvation. Look at verse 7. In whom we have redemption through the blood, the forgiveness of sins, according to the riches of his grace. So Paul notes that God now, in verse 10, that in this, in the dispensation of the fullness of time, he might gather together in one all things in Christ, both which are in heaven, which are in earth, even in him. Do you notice there the emphasis in Christ, in him? He then notes that this is our collective future inheritance, which God purposed to bestow according to his desire his will, his choice, his pleasure. Paul is relating how God determined an inheritance for his adopted children in Christ, just as a human father declares to bequeath something to his children. So you see, this verse actually supports the group concept of election in the sense that God determines an inheritance in eternity for the gathered group of beings in Christ, the church. To ignore this context, the Westminster Shorter Confession defines God's decrees as, and I quote here, his eternal purpose according to his counsel of his will, whereby for his own glory he hath ordained whatsoever comes to pass. End quote. According to this statement, one can only conclude that God is a deity who requires no discernment no distinction, decision-making or responsibility on the part of any of his creation. For humans are merely, if you will, pre-programmed robots carrying out his decrees. This is one of the reasons why many find new Calvinism to be appealing today. For if God has predetermined the course of life, they need only go with the flow, if you will having no responsibility or accountability. Uh, we're living in an age of no accountability or responsibility. In fact, many industrial reports I've read just recently are pointing out how difficult it is to get millennials to take responsibility. New Calvinism really lends itself to encouraging a lack of responsibility. For New Calvinism, in reality, offers a fatalistic view of life. Time Magazine declares that today's New Calvinist pictures God as, and I'm quoting here, an utterly 
sovereign, and micromanaging deity. End quote. One can only wonder then, what is the purpose of the judgment seat of Christ or the great white throne judgment if everyone has been pre-programmed, if you will, to receive either reward or judgment? Now, I need to point out here, the judgment seat of Christ and the great white throne judgment are two separate events in history. The judgment seat of Christ, I like to call it the evaluation opportunity of with Christ, is for Christians only of the church. The great white throne judgment occurring at the end of the millennium is for all unbelievers of all ages to see that their their lives were a constant rejection of God and his salvation. If everyone is pre-programmed to receive reward or punishment, any judgment becomes a mere mockery of a trial because it's already been determined. Now, just as Calvinists modified their definition of total of human depravity with the adjective total, remember that? I taught that in the previous video. They modify their definition of election with the adjective unconditional. According to New Calvinist R.C. Sproul, and I quote, unconditional election is not based upon some foreseen condition that some of us meet and others fail to meet, end quote. By this he means that God's choice is not dependent on some future condition that God is foreseeing ahead of time. Uh, the foreseen condition that he's referring to is faith in Christ. For many people believe that God looks ahead and sees that a person would have faith, therefore he makes them the elect. You see, Calvinism eliminates this concept that is held by so many that really believe that election is based on God's foreknowledge, not on election, but foreknowledge of those who have faith in Christ. This conditional position, however, cannot harmonize with the Calvinist view of total human depravity or God's sovereignty, as already mentioned. For according to Calvinism, God must regenerate the individual before he can have believing faith. Therefore, he must elect those whom he desires to regenerate and save, and conversely, those who he will condemn. Once understood, it is clear that to be a three-point Calvinist, one who has eliminated the first point, total depravity, to be an eliminated limited atonement, one must accept Reformed theology's definition of unconditional election that makes no allowance for foreknowledge of faith. One either accepts this teaching or is a new or classic Calvinist or rejects it as being inconsistent with the person of God and his attributes as revealed in the Bible. <laughs> for me, the Calvinistic view of election of individuals to salvation rather than election of a group for preordained service was enough for, to cause me to totally reject unconditional election. The additional concept of unconditional election only furthers my conviction that this teaching misrepresents God's graciousness, his forbearance, his truthfulness, and his love. For Peter again wrote, in his second letter, chapter 3. Let's, let's turn to 2 Peter. 2 Peter, chapter 3. Let's read verse 9. 
The Lord is not slack concerning his promise, as some men count slackness, but is long-suffering to usward, not willing that any should perish, but that should all should come to repentance. God isn't willing. That means his, his desire is that nobody would reject him. His desire is that all would come to repentance. But in his sovereignty, he allows them the freedom to choose. Now, I cannot accept the Calvinist interpretation of the word any in this passage, that any should perish, as meaning any of the elect. For you see, Calvinists, and I was taught this at seminary by one of my professors, that any, really, you've got to add of the elect. That's who it's referring to, of course. We know that. Well, no, there's no indication of that. No indication in the context of this passage that it is we should add of the elect. Instead, I see God's call to all mankind throughout the scriptures and even in the final words of the Bible in Revelation chapter 22, verse 17, we read, And the Spirit and the bride say, Come, let him that heareth say, Come. And let him that is a thirst come, and whosoever will, let him take the water of life freely. You see, that is God's sovereignty allowing the freedom of choice to come to him. That is truly a gracious God's means of salvation. Having seen God's gracious will to allow man the freedom of choice, let's look a little more carefully where he says, whomsoever will. What does that really mean? Well, the definition of whosoever will is crucial to deciding which view of election is correct and which one you would hold. In the Greek, whosoever will is a single word, thelo, meaning to will have in mind, intend, to be resolved or determined, to purpose. For example, this word was used to indicate Paul's will or desire to come to the Thessalonians, but Satan hindered him in 1 Thessalonians 2.18. It's also used in Galatians where we read that some people willingly chose to pervert the gospel. They willingly chose, Galatians 1.7. In Corinthians, it is used to convey the concept of a choice, as is clearly seen by its use in the passage concerning widows in remarriage. Paul wrote that a widow may marry whosoever whom she will, indicating that she has this free choice to marry or not. That's 1 Corinthians chapter 7, verse 39. The Greek word, for whosoever will, conveys the concept of the individual's will, his intention, his resolve, if you will, his purpose, his choice. In the New Testament also, the word believe is very important. It's an active verb, something one does, not something done to him. I'm offering several verses here you could check and look into, Acts 16.31, uh, 1042, Romans 116, 
10, verses 11 and 13. Christ himself made a promise. He said in John 5, verse 24, He that heareth my word and believeth on him that sent me hath everlasting life. Now, believeth there is one that one chooses. It wasn't put on him. He wasn't a result, if you will, of regeneration. You could also look at John 7, 37 and John chapter 10, verses 7 through 9. If these verses were simply taken in their obvious sense, without the outside influence of Reformed Calvinism's teachings on unconditional election, it is highly unlikely that anyone would consider interpreting them in terms of election. You see, Christ's offer of salvation to all who choose to respond is strikingly apparent from the contexts. For he did not say, He that is elect that heareth my word and believeth. No, he that heareth my word and believeth. One would simply conclude that God offers salvation to all who would choose to hear and to believe. When the concept of unconditional election is introduced, however, a conflict develops over God's invitations. Is his offer genuine or is he really saying, whomsoever that is the elect, whomsoever that is elect that wills, let him take of the water of life freely. Or he that is elect that heareth my word and believeth on him that sent me hath everlasting life. No. I believe that God's offer of everlasting life is genuine. Therefore, I remove the unconditional from my understanding of election and moved election from my salvation theology category to my serving, my service category. Please turn with me to 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 22. Seeing you have purified your souls in obeying the truth through the Spirit unto unfeigned love of the brethren, see that you love one another with a pure heart fervently, being born again, regenerated, not of corruptible seed, but of incorruptible, by the word of God which liveth and abideth forever. You see, I received Christ as my Savior through the channel of faith by the hearing of the Word of God, and I was convicted of its truthfulness by the Holy Spirit as I heard His Word. And therefore, what I read in Peter coincides with what I experienced on a hillside around a campground many years ago when I received Jesus Christ as my Savior. And I became then born again and regenerated, not of corruptible seed, but of incorruptible. How? By the word of God as the Holy Spirit convicted it in my heart. I have learned that once individuals are saved, they are created in Christ Jesus. What? To serve the Lord as part of his elect corporate body, the church. And we will do this for eternity. I remind you again, Ephesians 2.10, for we, we, plural, are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus unto good works, which God hath before ordained that we should walk in them. We, as the church, will walk in them.
As we've looked over all this, we see that election refers to God's choosing or electing to use a specific group of beings in a unique way to serve him in order to accomplish his plan and purposes to his glory. The group's election assures that it will accomplish its God-given tasks under his provision, his assurance, and supervision, because never forget, God is sovereign. And he preordained the works that would be accomplished. Election indicates selection of a group for service, not selection of individuals for salvation. Once again, I was forced to modify my suit size by discarding the Calvinistic concept of unconditional election to salvation and replacing it with group election for service. You see, another domino of Calvinism has fallen, leaving just three more points tottering. Please join me in my next program on the tumbling of tulip. And please understand that as these dominoes tumble, so does Calvinism. I hope you have found this series that I'm presenting on the tumbling letters of tulip. Oops, I thought I was a four-point Calvinist. We'll soon be bringing you the next video in this series. We will discuss limited atonement and why we believe that that point of tulip also will tumble. And then following that, we'll look at the remaining two letters of tulip and see how they too will fall. Join me again here on CMI TV. May the Lord bless you mightily until I see you again here or in the air. <laughs>